Hey everybody, this is Anthony Parrott, lead pastor of The Table Church, and here is a recording of our first class for reading the, the Bible for Liberation, or how not to read the Bible as a jackass. This is session one, Love and Struggle, and this is a recording of our Zoom session. Enjoy. So I am new to The Table, as you all know, um, but I do know that for Resurrection City, often the beginning of the year tends to be a time where you know, people are thinking through like, what is my spiritual engagement? What are my devotional practices? What am I doing <laughs> um, it, it, in this time of year? Um, and then Anthony mentioned that last year there was a class on emotionally healthy spirituality. Uh, last year, Red City, we did uh, a series on the rule of life. Uh, and so Anthony, you know, started putting out feelers into the congregation and it felt like a lot of folks were interested in in a class on uh, how to read the Bible, how to engage it, what to expect from it, what is it, and, and a space to just do a little bit of a deeper dive. Um, so that's kind of the intention over the next several weeks to allow space that's both oriented toward teaching, so some, some information, but always information leading toward embodiment. Uh, and then also space for some discussion, some exercises, uh, so that we actually try out some of the things that we we're talking about. That's it exactly there. You know, so there's some assumptions that we bring into the room here that uh, we are, you know, the Table Church, Resurrection City, D.C. Church. Uh, and so that must mean that we think there's something important about Jesus. And as soon as you bring up Jesus and Judaism and Christianity, uh, then you're going to have to start talking about the Bible. And we recognize we've, I've uh, both been a perpetrator of this and a receiver of this, that scripture uh, has been used for lots of harmful ways, lots of harmful things. Um, and why bother is often the question that comes up. Question of, man, I know a lot of people who don't follow the way of Jesus that aren't Christians, who don't go to church. And they seem to live lives of justice and liberation far more than these Bible-centered people do. Uh, so uh, I think there are reasons to bother, and I think that's part of what we're going to explore in, in this class. And that I hope, and this is always like the challenge with pastors and people with MDivs. <laughs> so you're going to have your responsibility, you all's jobs is to push us towards this. My hope is that this is practical and helpful and that you can actually walk away with like tools and resources and practices and exercises. And uh, Tanetta's word is for uh, embodiment. Uh, my word would be formation uh, that, you know, this actually is helpful in changing you in some way. I'll also just say personally uh, that I really like Tanetta. I really like working with her. And uh, I'm really eager to learn from her as well uh, because uh, we have discovered about each other that we, oftentimes come to similar conclusions about things, but the way that we approach it is very different. Uh, so I think our varied approaches can be helpful to this you know, big group of people that we got here, here in front of us. Um, and it's a way to also kind of check each other on what are these so-called conclusions that we're coming to uh, and how did we get there? And I think there's something to be learned as you all watch uh, Reverend Tanetta and I uh, get to these conclusions.
I like working with you too. <laughs> That's all I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I totally agree with, with all of that. And, 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 and I'm excited for this to unfold collaboratively. Um, like all of us are, you know, there'll be time at the, toward the end of this to just for just some questions. What do you want to know? So I'm also excited to just build this around what folks in the space actually want. So we're going to start with a little bit of autobiography. Uh, this class ended up with two titles. Uh, one was Reading the Bible for Liberation. The other was How Not to Read the Bible Like a Jackass. And we wanted to talk about kind of our personal history with the scripture. And we've entitled today's session, Love and Struggle. How, why do we love the Bible? Why do we struggle with the Bible? Uh, and, and share a little bit of our autobiography about that. So, uh, Tanetta, you've got the honor of being at the top of the outline. Uh, and I should say something uh, just that I did not say at the beginning, uh, and this is going to come out in my own wrestling with scripture. A lot of uh, the questions that I feel like I am getting now around scripture also have to do with like how colonized people can enter into this book that has been such an agent of colonization. Like how can diaspora people living in the United States deal with this thing? And so I just, I want to name that as really also formative in the ways that I am newly thinking about the Bible for myself and for those those around. Um, so yeah, just in terms of my uh, history with the Bible, I grew up in North Carolina um, and the Bible was a pretty large part of my world. Uh, my From a young age, my mom, my mom became a Christian when I was, you know, four, five. Uh, and she, like, she would, during the summer, she would draw us together for Bible reading and Bible discussion. Uh, and also, as I was reflecting, I realized the other thing my mother did uh, that affected my history with the Bible, my mother is a voracious reader, so she would just buy commentaries. And they would be commentaries from diverse perspectives. <laughs> like, when I go home now, I'm like, whoa, you have that and that? Um, but I saw her read commentaries and like interact with like what other people thought about scripture. And I think that really informed like what I expected from like Bible engagement, what I like the work I expected it to be. Um, and then I would also say really importantly in terms of, of um, growing up that I, I grew up very much going to church, very much in a black world that uh, use the Bible, uh, a Black community, a Black church that used the Bible as a launching point. I would say the trajectory in those communities was from death to new life. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard, in, in traditionally Black churches, often the arc of a sermon always moves from like death to new life. Um, not in every church, but in lots of churches. And so that was the grounding and framework that I uh, read into, saw in the Bible, um, primarily. And that was a source of hope. That was a source of like a sense that like trouble don't last always. It was a sense of dignity and joy. And I um, can remember, you know, like as an example of dignity, I remember having um, uh, just having, um, you know, playfully seeing ourselves in scripture as Black people. So I remember uh, there was one preacher who would talk about um, the story of uh, the fiery furnace in Daniel. And he would always call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. And it was like this source of like, oh, we somehow see ourselves in this. And that wasn't, you know, deeply critical or like, we're not, 
analyzing are these people black, but somehow we're a part of this story and we can enter into that with joy and find uh, dignity there. Um, and then I would also add that the Bible was in my growing up, a source of like inspiration toward justice and service, but it wasn't a super strong, um, it wasn't based, it up, based on this like deep critical analysis of scripture. It was just like, hey, we're called to hospitality. That's what scripture says, that's what we do. Uh, and the other thing as I was reflecting that I realized that I hadn't really put language to before is that in my growing up, the Bible was also the foundation and the pathway. It was assumed to a kind of middle-class respectability. So I wouldn't say that even in this community that was very much shaped by struggle um, and kind of oppression, it was still about the Bible and Christianity were deeply connected to becoming respectable in the world as is. Um, and obviously there, there were touches on kind of liberation theology, other more kind of radical theology and progressive theologies, but I think mostly it was about becoming a respectable person in the world. Uh, and that's something I've had to grapple with. Uh, and then I would say when I was 18 or 19, I started going to um, evangelical reform conservative churches. That is a long story that <laughs> one day I will fully explain. And that's really when I was introduced to words like inerrancy and uh, infallibility. That's when like, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about all this stuff. We are gonna talk about all these, this stuff later, but the idea that the Bible is um, this word of God that came down from heaven is literal, is without error, has no mistakes, has no, it does not need interpretation. I entered into that world in a, in a, very, uh, in a very real way. Um, and I'll also say that world, I kind of needed that. I, I, I it was a move from uh, a more intentionally intellectual faith and a less embodied faith that I now have a lot of critique of, but that probably at the time I needed a little bit of. Um, so I'll name that that happened, that like deeply intellectualized kind of study. Um, and finally, I'll say in terms of my history that the irony of my time in those kinds of churches was because they were so uh, intent on reading line by line. I was like introduced to ideas of reading the scripture in context and who was the first audience that actually those, those churches actually, they didn't know it, but they gave me the keys to coming out because they also, that also meant that like they taught me how to, apart from them, read scriptures like Roman, Romans 1 in, in a different light and to apply wider tools. Um, in terms of struggle, I would say um, I, my biggest struggle is the way in which the Bible has and continues to be a source of poison, the way in which it has literally brought death. Um, and yes, that's interpretation, but it is deeply connected to literal death and deathly systems in the world. So that is my largest struggle uh, in general with scripture. Uh, and then personally, the clobber passages for me were the biggest like obstacle if I were to name something like really specific. It took me, I'm one of those people, it took me two years to like work through those passages and talk to people and read and pray and 
So those were definitely the, that's where the most struggle came in. Those, those scriptures that people use to say that uh, same-sex uh, attraction and intimacy are against God's will. Um, in terms of how the Bible has been a source of hope for me, uh, and essentially Anthony and I are gonna kind of work through some of these questions, um, the same questions. I would just say for me, the Bible, um, the Bible as a source of multiple perspectives, the Bible as a, as, as a source that is dialogical, it's fundamentally in dialogue with itself. The authors are in dialogue. For me, it gives me deep hope because it says to me something about God, that God, God, the book could have been much more uh, univocal. It could have had one perspective. It could have been much more, um, you know, as opposed to being giving, uh, like helping us think through principles, it could have been rules. And that it's not, to, to me, gives me hope about who God is. It, it gives me a sense that God loves diversity. Like, I'm like, God must love diversity if this is the book, right? <laughs> that like, we are called to engage with. Um, I also am really inspired that the book, uh, you know, there are these places, the gospels are the easiest example, but where you have different readings of an event, um, and they, they exist side by side. And the people who are putting together the Bible, no matter, you know, you can look at different places to talk about that. Uh, the flood is another place. There are multiple, there are two different perspectives on the flood. You can look at a couple different places and you literally see different traditions side by side. And again, that lets me know that there is something about like not erasing perspective, allowing difference to exist and conversation to exist biblically. Uh, in terms of the Bible, that was really important. Um, I guess the last thing I'll say on this is that, um, gosh, there is so much to say. I knew this was going to be hard. I knew it was going to be hard. Uh, so I'll just say it's a multi-week series, so I'm going to calm down here. <laughs> I love the Bible. I love it. Um, I'll say it's also a source of hope because I feel like I've been able to find myself in it um, as a queer, black, gender non-conforming woman. Uh, and that's something that we'll get into more in the series. Um, and then finally, I'll say, I so Anthony came up with the how not to read the Bible like a jackass. I felt like my mother's gonna see this. She's not gonna, she, she's gonna kick me out if she hears me using that kind of language. So I gotta put something else on it. Uh, no, but seriously, I wanted to attach the word liberation because I think that in the West, um, there's always, and in, in all places colonized, colonized, there's a need to read against slaveholder religion. And I'll say more about that later. Uh, but I think reading toward liberation, understanding that God's self-disclosure is rooted in this Exodus experience of, um, yeah, of liberation against oppression is deeply, deeply important. Um, I'll read a quote that I really like on this and I'll, I'll put it in the chat in just a minute. Um, this is from a systematic theology, an African-American systematic theology called We Have Been Believers. Um, and this is what the author James Evans says. The history of revelation and the history of liberation are the same history. God's self-disclosure is not meant to increase humanity's storehouse of cognitive merchandise or to intensify one's inward feeling of piety 
but to demonstrate that God's presence and power are limited by neither geographical boundaries nor political structures. What we learn in the revelatory moment is that God is invested in the struggle for the oppressed for freedom. So for me, that's liberation is a huge part of the lens that we need when we're thinking about how to read the Bible and what the Bible does. So my history with the Bible, I similarly uh, was always around Christianity. So a bit of my very thumbnail sketch of my autobiography, I lived with my biological mother until I was seven. She was diagnosed schizo uh, paranoid schizophrenic and decided that she wanted to move, uh, drive from Indiana to Egypt to become a nurse. Uh, I was put into the foster system in Alaska on an attempt to complete that drive. Uh, found out that I had a congenital heart disease. Uh, so I then lived with my aunt and uncle in Indiana and then was put in the foster system again when I was 10 and finally adopted when I was 14. Uh, so through all, throughout all of that, um, I was always around Christianity in one way or another. I went to Catholic preschool and kindergarten. Um, and there was something about the story of Egypt and scripture that inspired my biological mom uh, to want to move there. Um, I encountered God in you know, the Catholic church as basically a omnipresent source of fear, uh, which had something to do with the form of parenting I was under at the time. Um, when I lived with my aunt and uncle, uh, Christianity was very much a religion of the book. Uh, we spent so much of our time memorizing scripture. I feel like I memorized more scripture as a third grader than as a divinity school student. Um, and eventually moved to uh, my namesake, the Parrots, and, you know, encountered both love and struggle with faith there because it was in that home that I first felt loved and um, belonging, but it was also there where I really first encountered uh, white evangelical Christianity. And uh, as someone who had gone through quite a bit of trauma in my early life, uh, I was refused counseling because uh, people who believe in Jesus didn't need counseling uh, according to how I was raised. Um, I, you know, playing a little bit of armchair psychologist with myself with the help of some therapists. Um, I was a kid, uh, you know, 13 through 20 year old uh, who was in desperate need of certainty. And I came to love scripture uh, around the age of 12 and just studied it constantly because it was a place where I could find, so I thought, certainty. And that's where I discovered all of the answers to the mysteries of life because the Bible could tell me exactly how the world was going to end and how many, you know, the seven-year tribulation and when the rapture would be and when Jesus would return and how soon it was coming and all, turn on the religious broadcasting network to hear all of the headlines about what was happening in Israel and Palestine and how the temple was going to be rebuilt. And I had certainty about knowing where, how the world was going to end. I could have certainty about uh, what a household relationship should look like and how the man should be in charge of the home and the woman should be stay home and support the husband and be submissive. I could have certainty about how that was all going to look like and purity culture and all of that. 
uh, I could have certainty about um, the way that God had created people and uh, all of the white supremacist views that filtered in in terms of why America and the West and particularly the white people who were in charge of it all were the ones who ought to be in charge. And that was the way that we knew that progress was happening in the world. Uh, I could have certainty about all of that. So love and struggle, uh, I loved it as a teenager. I love those feelings of certainty. They're addicting, they're fantastic. And I look back on it now and boy, do I have some struggle of like, oh dear God, what was I thinking? How could I have thought that? When I think about my own biography, and I think oftentimes when we all look at our own biographies, we have this mingling of love and struggle. And I think that our biographies are a good metaphor for scripture itself. That scripture also begins with some really questionable stuff, friends, <laughs> about a God who floods the world out of regret and anger, about a nation who is commanded to commit genocide against other nations because of sins that happened 400 years ago, uh, about you know household ethics and uh, ways of how to slaughter a goat or a pigeon or whatever so that you could appease God and that you could smell the burning flesh and think better of you. Yeah, there's some struggle there. Uh, and then you begin to encounter the prophets and how they begin to push against the very sacrificial system that they're a part of. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, if only you knew what these words mean. And then you come to the person of Jesus who begins to say these revolutionary ideas of you've heard it said, but I say to you in Matthew chapter five, uh, who begins to uh, question and push back against and actually stops the functioning of the temple uh, on the week of his death. And it begins to make you rethink all of what happened before. And so that's where I am with my own biography of there are these years where I had certainty and now I look back at them with a certain amount of embarrassment and shame. Uh, and now here I am in a place more of mystery and contemplation and yet find that far more fulfilling than the certainty that I had before. Uh, so love, love and struggle, hope and um, uh, and a little bit of despair mixed in all together. Uh, and in a little bit, we're gonna talk about metaphors of how we think about scripture. So I don't wanna jump the gun too much, but uh, I think that idea of certainty versus wisdom, certainty versus contemplation and mystery uh, does have something to do with how I have been approaching scripture uh, these past few years. The reason I wanted to title the class, How Not to Read the Bible is Jackass is um, I feel a certain amount of just emitting territorialism of like when we abandon scripture to bad interpretation, uh, corrosive, destructive, violent interpretation, uh, there's a part of me that gets a little bit like, no, no, you don't. That's, that's not what you do. Uh, just like if, you know, somebody starts moving into your neighborhood and you're like, mm, excuse me, uh, what, what you doing? This is my neighborhood. That's how a little bit of how I feel with, with when I see scripture being used to cause harm, 
to other people, other identities, other people groups of, wait a second, is my response to this to say, you know what, you take the Bible, you use it to harm others, and I'm just going to go find something else to do? Or do I have, and this is a question I'm wrestling with, do I have some responsibility to say, hey, you're taking this tool that has been and can be used for human flourishing and liberation and for good, and you're using it to, to beat people, and I have something to say about that. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the second half, how not to read the Bible like a jackass, uh, and don't abandon scripture to bad interpretation. Don't abandon scripture to the jackasses. Don't abandon scripture to the folks who would use it to bring harm to others. I think if we have eyes to see, scripture has a history, and this started with uh, the Jews, the Jewish religion, and it continued with the early Christians and the early church, uh, as well as with the Jews, uh, that uh, the stories of scripture, the narrative scripture, is what brought the idea of human dignity, human worth, human rights into the Western world. It's what brought uh, the concept of the Imago Dei uh, into a world that was known by hierarchy and violence. Uh, and I think that it's worth saying, hey, if you're using scripture against those principles and against those values, you're wrong. Now, I'm paying attention to myself because there's still that desire for certainty that keeps cycling around in my brain. And I'm always conscious of the fact of, am I, am I just becoming a new kind of fundamentalist? Um, so I say all that to raise questions, to raise the mystery that, uh, if you walk away from these eight weeks of classes and you're somehow less certain than you were before, uh, we, I will not apologize for that. <laughs> um, all right, so let's pause there. We're gonna do a breakout session and get you all talking to each other. Uh, but the question is this, like, why do you need the Bible? We shared a little bit of our love and struggle and out of that came a bit of our sense of need for it. Uh, Anthony talked about not abandoning scripture and why, um, but why do you need it? Why do you personally feel like you need it? And then where do you encounter resistance or how do you encounter resistance to that need? Uh, how are you actively embracing it? So that's multi-part. I love multi-part question because I feel like you can enter in anywhere. <laughs> um, so take your time, take a few minutes. So uh, any, you know, one or two brief takeaways that you've, uh, want to share with the large group of like, mm, somebody said something really impactful and everybody should know this. Um, something that we talked about that a couple of us shared was sort of having gone through different periods of engagement with the Bible, um, of times that we were sort of reading it really regularly and times when we weren't, um, and, you know, sort of the, the reasons that we maybe pulled back, um, you know, being what Anthony sort of mentioned and, and what Tanetta talked about of like, there are some really unfortunate things in the Bible and things that people have done with the Bible. Um, and so there was just sort of a general um, sort of excitement and looking forward to being able to maybe like reclaim our relationship with, with scripture in some ways um that you know we uh, for me I'm like how does anyone read the book of Joshua I'm like 
I look forward to Janetta and Anthony telling me how I can read the book of Joshua. I can share, um, I shared in the group that this is actually, especially how are you actively embracing, this is my very first Bible study ever. Like I have never joined, even though I've been in different churches and communities, I have never joined a Bible study because I've had like a resistance to it. Although I shared with them too, that like the Bible I've had my entire life is the one I got when I was two years old that I like kept <laughs> that has, has so many issues with it. <laughs> like it's beautiful and has so many issues at the same time. I am really looking forward to being in community with everybody and, you know, just listening and learning and engaging more in, in a way with this, this book that I know has, is at this, is so core to our faith or part of our faith tradition. And at the same time, just has for me, like a lot of big emotions. All right. What we're going to do now is we wanted to share metaphors or ways of thinking about the Bible that have been helpful to Tanetta and I. Uh, there are lots of metaphors that, you know, if you have been a Christian that's grown up in the church a chunk of your life, these metaphors get thrown about, I would say, sometimes thoughtlessly. Uh, and we wanted to maybe bring some other ones you haven't heard before and begin, you know, just naming that they're metaphors. Uh, so an example of one you've probably heard is you know, the Bible is the word of God. Okay, <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? Does the Bible actually refer to itself in that way? Does that have, you know, any particular significance to the way that we think about truth and significant, uh, you know, belief today? Um, so we're going to name some of our own metaphors and it'd be a good time to take some notes. We'll try to uh, give some like follow-up outline and notes ourselves after all of this. Uh, so I'll start, Tanetta will do the second half. Uh, so I'll start, uh, metaphor number one, this is in no particular order. Number Metaphor number one is a GPS versus compass. Uh, and this is getting at this idea of certainty versus wisdom. So a GPS, theoretically, offers us certainty about how to live our lives, what truth is, uh, which way we should go or not go. Uh, and I grew up and have often seen the Bible used in a GPS-like manner to the point, and you know, I will confess. All right, story. Uh, about two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, I was sitting in the little prayer chapel of my former church trying to figure out if I should move to D.C. and become the pastor of the table church. Now, at this point in my life, I, I, had, I had studied the Bible at a scholarly, academic level. I had deconstructed and reconstructed my faith a half dozen times. And yet, I was still struggling about this decision. And so I did the thing that I did as like a 13-year-old, which was to play Bible roulette. I, I, had, uh, I had my iPhone. I said, hey, Siri, pick a number between 1 and 66, because there are 66 books in the Bible. And I would, okay. it would oh, oh here, here's Siri. Here we go. So go to book number 57, which would be something like, I don't know, Hebrews. Okay. And then I would do it again. How many chapters in the book of Hebrews? Pick a number between 1 and 13. How many verses in chapter 7? And that was like, oh, God, just please give me something. I knew better, but I was wanting the Bible to serve as this GPS. 
Um, and that's how we often approach scripture. Now, here's the thing about GPSs. They're controlled by companies that have ulterior motives. So they want you, they want to sell you advertising. They want to put you into neighborhoods uh, that aren't used to that much traffic, but it saves you time. And so then neighborhoods get ticked off because there's 200,000 more cars in their neighborhoods than there used to be. And the GPS way of approaching scripture can also be infected by systems of oppression that tell you this is the way to understand scripture and any other way isn't possibly accurate. So that's a GPS. Then there's the compass. Now the compass gives you a lot less certainty. It tells you which way is north uh, this way tells you which way is north, uh, and then you've got to figure out the rest. So it takes practice and skill, and it takes a community of other people who who understand landmarks and where they've been before, and maybe places that that where they've tripped and fallen and made mistakes. Um, and you're not dependent on some corporation, someone that tells you exactly where to go and what to do, but rather on your own wisdom, learning to trust your own conscience and a community of people who have a collective wisdom. The compass is a lot scarier. There's the possibility of getting lost. Uh, but uh, when the battery runs out on your cell phone and the satellites are, you know, don't work because of a solar flare, uh, the compass, it ain't gonna break and it can lead you in ways that the GPS never could. It's metaphor number one. Metaphor number two is the family photo album. I actually got this one from um, uh, Pastor Angela when she preached a sermon here at the table. Was, you know, some of us uh, have family photo albums. And I say some uh, because of my tumultuous childhood, I don't have any, you know, family photos before the age of like 10. Uh, so I recognize that this is an imperfect metaphor. But some of us, we've got family photo albums that go back decades and generations. Now imagine going to the family photo album and looking for answers like, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> or what should I do with my life? Or uh, how should I organize my sex life? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a weird thing for a photo, a family photo album to do. That's not why we gather photo albums of our family. What are they meant to? They're meant to spark storytelling. Oh, do you remember when aunt, do you, oh, have I ever told you the time about grandma? Oh man, when you were a kid, you used to. They raise up stories for us. Now, this gets back in a little bit of what I was saying before about scripture. I can look back at my teenage years in particular and have a certain amount of embarrassment about many of the things I thought, said, and did as a teenager, crying in bathroom stalls about girls and using Bible verses to make my friends listen to me, all those, I can have lots of embarrassment about that. We can look back at our family photo albums and have equal amounts of pride or embarrassment or just confusion about things that I or my family did in the past. But I'm not convinced that the right answer to embarrassment is to pretend like the past didn't exist or didn't happen. The past is what formed my present. My past is what made me who I am today. And I think I owe it to myself to know something about my past. Now, the past is just as equally able to give us examples of what to do 
as it is to give us examples of what not to do. In fact, to get a little Bible-y on you, this is something that uh, Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, the stories of my people, the Jews, were given to us as an example of how not to behave. <laughs> oh, dang, Paul. That gives me a completely different perspective on what I need to be doing with the Hebrew scriptures or what we call, sometimes call the Old Testament. It is not only like, well, um, so-and-so king went and slaughtered all of these people, so go and do likewise. What if so-and-so misunderstood God in the first place? Family photo album. I'll go with one more and then I'll let uh, Tanetta go. Uh, two more, two more, sorry. Um, a blade. So a blade can be used in lots of different ways. It can be used as a sword to bring violence and bloodshed, or it can be used as a, 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 a scythe to cut down grain, to feed yourself and your neighbor. Uh, it can be used as a weapon, or a blade can be used as a scalpel. Uh, and scalpels, yes, they cut, but they cut to bring healing. I am willing to confess of myself, I need healing. There are things in my life and in my soul and in the way that I live that need to be healed. And sometimes that healing requires a wound in order to bring about healing, a cutting out. I think that because of the perpetual myth of redemptive violence, there's this belief that even if we use the Bible as a sword, as a weapon, it's worth it because violence can bring about the will of God. I doubt that that is true, but I do wonder if the Bible can be used as a scalpel in order to bring healing or as a scythe in order to reap a harvest in order to feed others instead. And is my response to seeing someone misusing the blade as a sword to say, no more blades, or to say, no, it's being used incorrectly. Let me show you the right way. Uh, I'm reminded of a quote from Frederick Douglass, uh, who talks about this slaveholder religion. I've shared this in a sermon before. For between the Christianity of this land, the United States, and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is to be necessarily the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ, Frederick says, and I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. There, indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Both the slaveholder religion and the Christianity of Christ spring from scripture. But just because one is used for, uh, for violence and harm doesn't mean that the other can't be true. Final one, anybody, does anybody else's parents or maybe yourself ever have a waterbed? Waterbed, yeah, I feel like they were designed by people who did not understand 
uh, spinal disorders and back pain uh, because they, they offered no support, uh, but they were very fun to play on as a kid. And so, you know, you could have one person on one side and the other person on the other side, and you could jump and it would throw the other person off the bed, which would of course tick mom and dad off because you could spring leaks in the mattress. And then you'd have these commercials uh, for these like memory foam or spring foam mattresses that would show somebody dropping like the 10 pound bowling ball on one side of the bed and then like the vase with water and flowers, not even jiggling at all. So this is what everybody wanted after those commercials come out. You want the bed that two people can be, you know, as violent as they want to be in bed and it doesn't bother the other person no matter how much the other person tosses and turns. Metaphor. I think sometimes we construct a view of the Bible like a waterbed. Oh, there are two different creation narratives in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It's like a bowling ball on a waterbed. Everything jiggles and shakes and throws everything off. Well, why does it have to be that way? Why does what some poets talking about the creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have to do with what the gospel writers 2,000 years later were writing about the life of Jesus. Oh, there are two different historical narr narratives uh, of, of Israel in First and Second Kings versus First and Second Chronicles, where in First uh, Kings, uh, God tempts David to conduct a census which then it brings about a plague. But then in Chronicles, it's not God who tempts David, it's Satan. Somebody has gone and edited something. Well, again, is this a, a bowling ball on the waterbed that then jiggles our entire faith out of alignment? Or could we construct a view of scripture that's more like that memory foam, spring-loaded mattress that, sure, drop all the bowling balls you want, but our way of understanding scripture is that one, yes, may have implications for the other, but it's not going to throw it completely off the mattress. So here are a couple of, uh, a few different ways that I think about scripture. Some of them are metaphors, some of them are just ways of thinking about scripture. Also, I love that GPS versus compass. Like that, that was, I had not heard that. That was, that was amazing. Um, so first of all, I, I think of it like I think sometimes about dreams. Like they have some elements that are literal. Like uh, I've often said, you know, sometimes, you know, you might have a dream that involves your mother and, uh, you know, maybe your mother is riding a bike. Maybe she would do that. But then in your dreams, there are other elements that you're like, no, my mother wouldn't be riding her bike down an airplane runway in a skin tight bodysuit, right? Like my mother, that's like, there's this element of like, yes, yeah, some things are literal. Some things are, uh, are, are uh, very much a part of the real world. Some element, there are always elements in dreams that let you know you're part of a unique realm. Uh, so think about um, the book of Jonah and the fish, right? Like swallowing um, Jonah. Like there's this way in which you know you're part of a unique realm that involves metaphor, that is playing with myth to get to truth. But no matter what, dreams usually express something that is true, that is fundamental about reality or humanity. And if we don't pay attention to dreams, then we get in a lot of trouble often, right? If we continue to have the same dream over and over again, or something keeps coming up in our dreams. So that's one way I think about uh, the Bible. 
I also really like to think about the Bible as technology. Uh, and this comes out of Eugene Peterson's work, um, the, the Bible translator. He passed away a couple years ago. Uh, he wrote the message in addition to a ton of other works. Um, so here's what he writes. He says, and he, he writes this in a book about prayer. And I think about this when I think about the Bible. He says, in our largely externalized culture, we are urgently presented with tools that enable us to do things and to get things. We are also well-trained in their use. We are not so readily offered tools that enable our being and becoming human. So I think about the Bible as this tool that enables our being and becoming human. We are accustomed to think of our age as conspicuously technological, but the largest area of the human continent is impoverished technologically. The vaulted technologies of our day are used only along the shoreline of our human condition, the vast interiors bereft. The consequence is that lacking adequate tools, most people don't venture into these interiors, at least not very far. Life is constricted on the boundary. So I think a lot about the way in which, because the nature of scripture is complex, right? Because we have to grapple with it. It's a tool to, to explore both our interior and the nature of reality, right? It's, it's, a, it's a technology um, about being and becoming, I think that we pretty desperately need. Uh, I think of it as an icon as well. I actually meant to have, there's an icon, I'm gonna grab it. So icons are often used in um, kind of uh, the faith. Eastern Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy. You probably can't see this, but this is Moses the Black. Uh, can't, you probably can't see it, but this is an icon. He has the uh, kind of the halo around him. And in various parts of Eastern, uh, Eastern Christianity, Eastern, or Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, you take an icon and you stare at it. You look at it. Uh, you gaze at it. And the idea is that it's both a window and a mirror. And I think a lot about that when I think about the Bible, this thing that you engage, that you look at, that you stare at, that you orient yourself toward. And it's both a window that you're looking through to see God, but it's also a mirror that's also been revealed to you something about yourself and humanity and the human condition and our struggles. Um, and I think a lot about that when I think, you know, about books like Joshua, the mirror part. And there are other parts that I think about, well, I think about it with the whole thing, but I definitely think there are certain parts that like, I have to front as like, yeah, there's something here that, that is a mirror, um, perhaps more than a window. I think about it as a wisdom book. Um, I think we're going to get some, you know, we'll talk, we'll give some resources later, but Peter Enns does a great job of talking about this, he has a podcast called The Bible for Normal People. Um, and Anthony also mentioned this, this idea, uh, at least the, the, so the way that we have the Bible as Christians, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament as Christians, moves from, uh, it moves from like the Torah, the law, the kind of law books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then in our Bibles, uh, you get like these books, like um, you get some prophets, you get some, uh, like wisdom literature, etc. But in the Hebrew Bible, like the original shape of the Bible, you move from Torah law into prophetic critique, into wisdom. 
And I think that that is like the shape of our spiritual lives, that we need law and we need structure and we need identity formation. And then we often move into self-critique and critique of the world and questioning, but those draw us into wisdom. And I think the Bible overall does that. Um, if you go into Proverbs, like Proverbs 3.18 talks about wisdom as a tree of life. And in Eden, there's also a tree of life that exists in the presence of God. And the writer there is making this connection that wisdom places us in the, in, into the presence of God. And I, need, I needed this kind of way of looking at the Bible because I grew up with like knowing the answer is what matters, not formation toward wisdom. But within the Bible itself, you get this witness that wisdom places you in the presence of God, attaining wisdom. Wisdom is with God at the very begin, beginning of creation. Proverbs 3, Proverbs 8 both say that. Uh, and then wisdom is as close to God as you can get, right, in parts of scripture. So again, this idea that you're, I think it's important, this helps me think about like, but I'm not losing something when the Bible moves me toward formation and wisdom. Like there's a long tradition that would say wisdom is the goal. Uh, and then I would say, uh, this comes from Richard Rohr. I really, I like some of what he says, uh, which is another conversation, but he talks about how wisdom can connect us to deep time. Um, and I'm just gonna read this because I think it's really, really helpful. He says, a sacred myth keeps the people healthy, happy, and whole, even inside their pain. They give deep meaning and pull us into deep time which encompasses all life, past and future, geological and cosmological, and not just our little time or culture. Such stories are the very food of the soul, and they are what we are trying to get back to when we start fairy tales with phrases like once upon a time or long ago in a faraway land. Uh, and I'll stop reading there, but that idea, I think we need stories that connect us to deep time, that connect us to truth outside of our own modern understandings. And I think the Bible is amazing at doing that. And then I think the last two things I have, um, I think about the Bible as a survival tool. This is just a way I think about it that's been helpful. Howard Thurman, who wrote Jesus and the Disinherited, in addition to a number of other things, um, he talks about this. And I think for me, if the Bible isn't helping to move toward flourishing, if that's not a primary way of reading scripture, I have some questions. And I think out of when we read this scripture well, I think out of it does come this witness uh, about human flourishing. So Thurman says, I do not ignore the theological and metaphysical interpretation of the Christian doctrine of salvation. But the underprivileged everywhere have long since abandoned any hope that this type of salvation deals with the crucial issues by which their days are turned into despair without consolation. The basic fact is that Christianity, as it was born in the mind of this Jewish teacher and thinker, appears as a technique of survival for the oppressed. So that's something that I expect. That's a way I read scripture. How does it lead to survival? So obviously that then preclude readings that uh, support, for example, violence against trans people. So just to name one example, I'm thinking about how does it lead to survival? How does it lead to flourishing? Uh, and then the last thing I would say is I think about it as good work. Um, so I was driving with my wife um, and we were on a long trip years ago uh, and we were listening to some John Gottman who's like a marriage therapist we really, really love, marriage counselor. 
Uh, and, you know, we then after we finished listening, we talked some about like, oh, this is going to take some work, like reading this, talking about some of our issues and stuff. And my wife said, but it's good work. And it just made me think so much about the way work is talked about in Genesis and the way that work, you know, precludes that story of the world going awry in Genesis 3, going awry in Genesis 3. That, that, that Adam and Eve are cultivating, they're doing good work. And I think the Bible is like that. Like, I think it's hard in a lot of ways, but it's also good work. Um, this is the last quote. This is the last thing I'll say. This is from my one of my favorite articles on the Bible. It's by a woman, a Hebrew Bible scholar named Ellen Davis. And the article is called The Soil is Scripture. Uh, the Soil That is Scripture. And here's kind of what she says about this good work and this good work of cultivation. I am not gonna read the Hebrew. My Hebrew is very, very, uh, it, it, it needs some, some, uh, some updating, okay? <laughs> I don't know if anybody you wanna read it, but the ancient ab uh, rabbis had another image for what it is to read scripture critically, a saying I especially like. The saying means, turn. do you wanna read it? No, okay. go, go ahead. The, the saying means turn it over and over. Everything is in it. And in it or through it, you will see everything. The ver it is a verb one might use of turning a crystal over and over to examine its different facets or of turning compost until it is ready for the soil. The latter nuance is especially suggestive of what it is to live productively with scripture and out of its rich richness. Reading scripture well is like being a master gardener. And the Bible is like soil. If we are gardeners and it is necessary to ask, what are the habits of mind and heart that a good gardener cultivates? At least they are humility, love, and patience. It is not simply that a humble, loving, and patient person is able to make a garden beautiful. Reciprocally, the daily work of gardening seems to cultivate those qualities in a person. Uh, and I love this. And her whole article is really about what it means to grow in humility as we read, what it means to grow in love as we read, and what it means to grow in patience as we read. But I definitely, this is a primary lens too, that it is work. It is definitely work to read the Bible, but it's good work. Any questions or responses to any, any of the metaphors or any clarifications you want? Some resonances with GPS versus compass, uh, the idea of deep time, uh, Matt Wilmot says the modern era is super peculiar in the many ways that we can be so denatured. That connection with deep time is a connection to the deep human living. Uh, somebody mentions the idea of turning the soil and good work. Someone's contemplating the dream metaphor. And I'll just add something that's probably super obvious um, at this point, but I think bears saying out loud that whatever metaphor we apply, um, it is critical to what we expect. And I think so much of like, uh, whether we're able to engage the Bible is about what we expect from it or don't expect from it. Like if we expect like, yeah, I'm gonna, it's, it's, it's gonna take some work. Or if we expect like, um, there is gonna be ambigu ambiguity, there is gonna be discrepancy, but it leads to something. Uh, I think the expectations that we bring are, are key. Um, before we like start to wrap up, I just wanted to know, and I, maybe maybe I'm off, um, so we can do this in whatever order works best. I do just want to give a few minutes before we get off to like 
just the question of maybe out loud, you can do this in the chat too, depending on how you feel, but just that question of what, um, what do you need? And again, maybe I'm a little off. This no, no, go for it. Go for it. Okay. Um, but like, what do you need from this class? Like if you're like, I, if I, you know, move through these multiple classes and I don't get this thing, this one thing, and let's just leave it at one for today, but like, <laughs> what is that thing? I just want to, cause I definitely want to make sure that we're, you know, building it out in ways that like, get it. Like, here's the one thing. Um, so I just would love like two minutes or three minutes or so of just like uh, response to that. And please don't self-censor yourself. Uh, you're you're in a group of people with a wide variety of experiences of they're, they're new to the Christian faith to they've been in for a long time. They have been the oppressor to they've been oppressed. They like you're in just in a very wide group of experiences so don't self-censor yourself to like well this is a dumb question or an offensive question like we tonight and I, we need this in order to do well at our jobs so please please answer what is it that you want or need from this class um i think personally since i've been on this like d slash reconstruction journey i've been i've gone from one extreme to the other where like the scripture is inerrant and like you know, you just like take it for what it is to what can I believe, what's true, that doesn't seem right. And I, I'm trying to move away from a place of like throwing it away altogether and just learning how to approach scripture, I think responsibly. Um, and without like, yeah, the, essentially throwing my faith away, uh, which which it's not that extreme, but my, my brain loves to work in black and white. I see in the chat, relearning how to use the Bible after religious trauma and deconstruction, especially in light of other scriptures and other faiths. I think that's, yep. Yeah. And in particular, I know, uh, Ray, you talked about big emotions. So yeah, like what, when there is this an, an emotional response, because there, there, like some of us have come from churches where there has been actual abuse that we need to name. And so how do you then come back to uh, a text that has been a a part or is associated in some way with that abuse. So I, I appreciate that. And then we have how to respond internally to others and to the concept of the Bible clearly. Clearly, that's a great question. So I always struggle with like the short, like, what is my two minute answer to this? Like I always struggle with that. And I, that's a great question. Unlearning um, the jackass lessons of the past and rebuilding a new foundation on which to move forward. Yeah. Anybody else, anything that's like your one thing? before Anthony shares kind of what we're thinking going forward and how we might include some of those. Anybody else? Just add a little briefly on building on what Ashley talked about. Um, I don't know if it's too much to ask, but maybe like a step wise, like if you're gonna start a Bible study, like, and I know that's very specific and even my therapist sometimes I'm like, just tell me ABC. And she's like, that's not how it works. So, but maybe just, because right now sitting down to open the Bible seems very overwhelming. Maybe just some like first steps or resources or things like that. It's not too much to ask and your therapist isn't wrong, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, th that's towards the end of our eight weeks because uh, we want to lay down like a really good foundation so that uh, those steps that we're going to give make some sense. 
something that would be helpful. I don't know if this is my one thing, but something that would be really helpful is learning more about where the bad interpretations came from. And so that might not, that might not be something we can cover in the class, but like maybe some good texts to read about that. When in doubt, I blame Constantine, but I'm not sure that's a great, it's a pretty good instinct. It's not a perfect instinct. A little thing called the heresy of Christian empire. Yes. <laughs> yep. uh, I'll name another thing that just is coming up as we're talking. I think it'll be fun to talk some about like um, the way in which we think about Bible reading as a personal individual thing versus in community. Because I feel like so much of like the way we're even talking now is about like how do I read it alone by myself? And so I'm, I'm very curious to see how we'll lean in and the conversations we'll have around that. Yeah, I think that like this has kind of been said in different ways by different people, but like um, and maybe this isn't my one thing, this might be a thing for a future class, but like what to do when like you run into like a verse or a story that like elicits a really strong emotional response and like what a couple ways to go about deconstructing that is without like using it to hurt you further, without using it to push you away from the Bible, instead of just like avoiding it and backing off entirely, which has tended to be my response. <laughs> Thanks everybody for putting stuff in the chat too. Um copying and pasting into our notes document that Tanetta and I have. So we'll review all of this. All right, we just have a couple of minutes left. So let me give a broad sweeping overview of what we hope to accomplish and we'll revise and adjust as time goes. Uh, I also pretty sure I put in the, some at least some of the promotional materials, eight-ish weeks. Uh, so if we need to take longer, we will. Um, next week, what we will do is talk about the origins of the Bible. Where did it come from? And I know, I know that I know that some of you are like, mm, I can skip that one because it sounds historical and boring. I beg you not to. <laughs> um, when we start understanding where this photo, uh, family photo album originated from, it's going to make some of the other things make sense in terms of why we approach scripture the way we do and why other ways of approaching scripture, this literal, historical, whatever, proof texting, dictionary, all knowledge don't make sense. So that will be next week. Uh, in two weeks, session three, it's called Dead People Do It Better. And we're going to talk about how the Jews have read scripture and how the early church read scripture. So we're going to talk about historical ways that our spiritual ancestors approached this collection of books that we call the Bible. Session four, everyone has a lens. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the idea that everyone approaches the Bible with different perspectives and lenses of understanding. So you put on a, a, a pair of frames or a pair of glasses and it changes the way that the text looks to you. So we'll be acknowledging Western lenses, individualistic lenses, uh, middle-class readings about um, the interpretive gap in terms of gender and collaboration, all of that stuff. Uh, session five, we'll get into some of those um, traumatic experiences reading Bible. It's called Disarming Bible Bombs. Uh, so how do we de-weaponize the Bible and find healing in it? Uh, and then six, seven, and eight, I'm, we're more wishy-washy about what these exactly will look like, uh, but we're going to talk about uh, Christ or cross-centered hermeneutics, fancy word that means how to interpret the Bible. So how do you start with Jesus and build biblical understanding from there. 
Um, session seven is building a toolkit. So we'll talk about tools, books, websites, practices, questions. Um, we've got another session called how to read like a mystic. Uh, so how do you use uh, Jewish and Christian uh, mystical practices to understand scripture? Uh, and then we've got a whole list of other things that we need to get to thanks to the conversation that we had today. So we'll try to get those all in uh, because we also wanna talk about, um, yeah, um, lots of things. There's so much to talk about. There's so much to talk about. We have no shortage of things to talk about. Yeah. And I think it'll be fun to engage for me. It's going to be really fun to engage this as, I mean, I, I am in a, I am very much in a place of for the past couple of years of intentionally bringing in alternate voices and how they're talking about these things. So when I say alternate, I mean, at least in this society, you know, how are women thinking about this? How are queer people thinking about these things? How are, you know, black and brown folks, all kinds of folks, disabled people. How are we, how are lots of kinds of people thinking about this? So I'm, I'm really excited to see also just what I learn as I bring that, those resources in. Yeah, yeah, same. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. We will be back next week with session two as we talk about how the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scriptures were put together. See you then.